You're listening to the It's Only Rock and Roll Podcast with your host, Don DiMuccio. I want to rock! I remember when rock was young. All right, welcome to the It's Only Rock and Roll Podcast. My name is Don DiMuccio, and yes, the rumors are true. I am suing Nirvana for using a photo of my body on the cover of Nevermind and superimposing that damn baby's face on it. Not cool, Dave Grohl. Not cool. Today's show is another full circle moment for me. When I was about nine years old, I'd been taking drum lessons for a year or so, and my drum teacher had an autographed copy of Carmina Peace's Rudiments to Rock instruction book, and it really caught my eye. So a deal was struck. If I can make it through that book, doing four pages week to week, at the end of the six weeks, he'd give me the autographed book. Long story short, today, not only do I have the book in my collection, I've got the author on my show. He's a founding member of Vanilla Fudge, as well as Cactus, King Cobra, and KGB, a drumming innovator who worked with legends like Ozzy, Jeff Beck, Ted Nugent, and Rod Stewart. Perched in the catbird seat behind his oversized drum kit, Carmine Apiece has quite literally seen it all. Today's guest is arguably the most prolific and omnipresent drummer of the rock era. As a founding member of the 60s heavy psychedelic band Vanilla Fudge, his hard-hitting approach profoundly influenced up-and-comers like Ian Pace and John Bonham. His later work with Jeff Beck and the critically acclaimed supergroup Beck, Boger, and Apiece served to solidify his reputation within the music scene. 
He famously recorded and toured with Rod Stewart during the singer's most successful period and in the process co-wrote two top five classics, Young Turks and Do You Think I'm Sexy? And that's just the tip of his career iceberg. Please welcome to the It's Only Rock and Roll podcast, winner of more Lifetime Achievement Awards than I have the wherewithal to list, one of my drumming heroes, Mr. Carmine Peace. Hey, that was nice. Thank you. <laughs> How's it going, man? It's going good. It's going good. I'm uh, in Florida. I moved here after 40 years of California. Wow. And uh, I still have my family, my kids, and my sister, brothers, they're all in California. You know, my, my girlfriend was in radio in New York, and she didn't like L.A. and, and kind of got sick of the government over there. Oh, yeah. You know, and uh, so we moved to Florida, and I love it here. Now, your kids, grown? Yeah, oh, yeah, they're grown. They're, 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 Any they're budding musicians son. in the bunch? Both, really. My daughter played bass and sang. When she was 12, I recorded her. She sang like Christina Aguilera, but then she got out of that. And now she does special effects makeup for movies, and she's working on two uh, seasons of Star Trek. Oh, no she's kidding. Done, she's done other things like, you know, True Blood and American Horror Story and different movies. And she did that latest Te uh, Bill and Ted's Adventures. Oh, yeah. She did the latest one of those. That's and my son cool. just is going to turn 30 in a couple next week, actually. He's an interventional radiology tech in the hospital in uh, L.A. Wow. He works in the operating room, and he's doing very well. He got himself a Tesla. <laughs> he's got a little gym in the house he lives in, and he works all the time. He's saving money to buy a house in L.A. It's fantastic. So, so they're both doing good. And my, my brother lives in California next to my older brother around the corner, which they never lived near each other because they, they, they have like 14 years 15 years difference in their age yeah so the time my brother Vinny was 10 years old my brother frank was already gone oh okay now they hang out together and, and it's really nice to see you know that's cool and my sister still lives out there too so everybody's out there but me yeah <laughs> you're the smart one yeah i got out that's it <laughs> well you know as i said when we first started and i'll say it again you truly influenced and inspired me as a drummer and uh sadly this week we lost someone who inspired generations of drummers great charlie watts one of rock's yeah. true gentlemen yeah. um having now had some time to digest the news what are some of your thoughts and memories on uh, charlie's legacy well first of all where are you from rhode island God, i can hear that charlie <laughs> you know that there you go yeah yeah you know vanilla fudge started in newport rhode island Did i know, know that? yeah i was gonna ask you about that rehearsing yeah. there oh, we'll talk about that but yeah, charlie yeah, yeah. you know i only met charlie once or twice i didn't really know him as a, a friend but I always, you know, liked his playing a lot. He was one of those drummers that less is more. Oh, yeah. A great groove. I really started liking him a lot more on Beggar's Banquet and after that, because I thought Beggar's Banquet was a great, great album. He played great on it. And Charlie was one of those drummers that knew where not to put the drum fill. I'm the one that knows where to put the drum fill, and I put more of them, than, a lot more than Charlie does. <laughs> you know, but when I play with Rod... You know, Charlie had a way of playing what we call behind the beat. Yes. And when I was touring with Rod up until that point, except, I mean, Vanilla Fudge, I played kind of behind the beat, like and hanging on and all that. But then I got with Cactus and BBA, and those bands were more like spot on the beat, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. When I played with Rod, I had to remind myself how to get back behind the beat. So Rod used to say, listen to Charlie, listen to Charlie. Yeah. He used to beat that in my head. And I, and I used to go back and listen to Beggar's Banquet and a few of those you know, great albums like that, Let It Bleed and stuff like that, Honky Tonk Woman. And I used to do flams on the hi-hat to the snare. So when I hit the hi-hat on the small note and, and the flam, since you're a drummer, you know what I'm talking yes. about. Uh, as the big note, it, it naturally gave you that behind the beat. After the first tour we did, uh, I had it down. And Hot Legs, I had the Charlie behind the beat down, but they also had my kind of drum fills sure. going on. Did you ever have so, a chance to see him live? Yeah, I did see him live a couple of times with the Stones. Yeah. Uh, but there was in huge arenas and stadiums and stuff. I know we had a big party in uh, London, and all the Stones came, and I, I met Charlie there briefly. The last Stone show I went on, it was probably in the 80s. I knew Ronnie really well, and Ronnie got me back, and Daryl Jones gave me the backstage. I hung out in the Voodoo Lounge with Ronnie and Keith oh, yeah. playing pool and stuff. So I knew those guys more than I knew anybody else in the band. And I guess Steve Jordan is now going to take over yeah, for the which tour. Yeah, I, I thought it was a, kind of a strange pick, actually. Steve is great and all that, but I would thought they would get somebody like Kenny Jones. 
Well, I think it's because he knows them so well. He's he was in the expensive winos with Keith, and maybe, maybe, worked, yeah. I think I would imagine it's more of a friend thing than looking for yeah, someone style wise. So, yeah, 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 so, yeah. yeah. I mean, that's how it ended up. When I ended up in Rod. It was a friend thing too, you know. Yeah. You know, when I, I called up about that gig, the uh, tour manager was uh, Pete Buckland, who toured with Rod in the Faces when Cactus. We did I don't know thirty forty shows with them. We wrecked a lot of hotels, abused a lot of women. <laughs> and, and I knew him really well. So when I called him, he said, let me tell Rod. Rod said, I'll have Carmine come down and check out the band. Instead of like, you know, the band checking me out, I went down to check out the band. Right. I loved it. And when I pulled up to Rod's house, which was an amazing mansion in LA and Beverly Hills, I said, man, I want to play with this guy, you know? Sure. And I knew Rod and I always loved his voice. It, to me, he was always one of the best frontmen. And when I played with him from 76 to 82, that was the primo prime of his career sure was i mean 79 we did six nights at the la forum five nights at the garden you know, four nights at boston arena you know yeah. crazy so right. it was like right. unbelievable the crowds we were playing to yeah i learned a lot from rod and when i was with him he was the best singing front man bar none he's sure. better than jagger better than roger daltrey better than any front man that was out at the time Let me rewind the clock, and I know it's a basic interview question, but I got to ask you about your childhood growing up in the late 50s, early 60s, because any household that could produce two world-class drummers like yourself and your younger brother, Vinny, I mean, that must have been a special one. Was it a musical family? No, not really. It was, uh, my mother used to sing a lot to the radio. My yeah. father played sax for a second. <laughs> You know, but uh, we used to go over my cousin Joey's house who had his drum set. And whenever we went over there, I'd jump on the drums and start banging on them. And then when we'd go home, I'd take the pots and pans out. And I was just watching a, a DVD, uh, a thing on YouTube. It was about drummers, you know, and a lot of them started the same way, pots and pans. And oh, yeah. Cindy Blackman, pots and pans. And yep. uh, Stuart Copeland, you know, pots and pans. And, and then we got, you know, toy drum sets and then... You know, we go to my cousin's house again. I played a real drum set, and it kept going. And finally, when I was about 11, maybe, yeah, maybe about 11, I got a real drum set, a bass drum, a snare drum, and a cymbal from Sam Ash. It was the one Sam Ash store in Brooklyn, you know, first yeah. one. It was a top shelf of a four or five shelves up. There was a cheap drum set, 55 bucks. Do you remember what so it was? Got, was it was one of those no-name? There was no label. No label. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah. It was a, it was a non-label one. I, it was one cymbal attached on a clamp to a bass drum a snare drum and a bass drum. Yep. You know, but to me, it was like unbelievable. It was a real drum set. So I played that for a while, and then I started doing gigs. You know, I played a few gigs with that drum set, and then I told my parents I need another drum set. They always bought me whatever stuff I needed like that. They bought me around Christmas and my birthday because it's 10 days difference. <laughs> I would get two gifts as one. Now, we had a guy that lived on the block that worked at Gretsch, so he got me a cheap, I think it was 300 bucks, he got me a real bass drum, a tom-tom, a Zildjian cymbal, and a, and a Gretsch snare drum. Uh, you know, but it was a real kit. You're styling. I was styling. And yeah. that's, that's basically, uh, I used the, the bass drum and the tom-tom on You Keep Me Hanging On. Really? Yeah, I had it that long. Wow. So that was like 63, maybe. Was it a 22? Or yeah, a 22. Kick? Yeah, 22. Yeah. And then I ended up getting the big bass drums because at the time when the fudge started, the amplifiers got bigger and bigger and the drum sets were not heard. There were no PA systems, you know. So I, I thought bigger the better. So I got a big bass drum yeah. and that worked. And then when I got Ludwig endorsement, I got everything oversized. And that started the oversized drums that are still going today. Well, I was going to say, it's a fact that you were the blueprint for all future hard rock drummers. As influential as Ringo and Charlie Watts were and are, uh, they weren't heavy hitting drummers. I think maybe the no. only guy I can think of maybe was Dino Dinelli from the Rascals. Yeah, he wasn't right, but he I took what Dino did to the next level. Right. As far as volume and showmanship and crazies. You right. Know? I, I knew Dino before he was in the Rascals. He was opening up for Gene Cooper at the Metropole. He had a group called Ronnie Speaks and the L Rods. And he had a twenty four inch bass drum, which was killer. Mm. And then he was doing this great beat, you know, that really inspired me. And when he came up the stage I was talking to him. I can't remember if he wrote it out or if I wrote it out, but he read music and 
And I went home and I practiced it. And from then on, he was like an inspiration to me. And then when he started coming out with the Rascals, before they made it big, they used to play the clubs in New York. And I used to go see them. And because they didn't have a bass player, the bass drum was very dominant in that band. Sure. You know, and, and Dino was playing some great stuff and he looked great, doing great twirls. You know, so I was very inspired by Dino at that point. And then when we made his Vanilla Fudge, I was the only one hitting hard. I mean, Dino hit somewhat hard, but I had the stick turned around. I was hitting really hard. And you look at the other guys from that era, it was Keith Moon. He played a lot of cool stuff, but he didn't hit hard. No. Mitch Mitchell, great player, great drummer. Love Mitch, but he didn't hit hard. And Ginger and Mitch were like jazz drummers. Charlie Watts was a jazz drummer. And Ringo, I, I didn't like until he started playing uh, on Revolver. I, I didn't really care for the Beatles until Revolver. Once they started doing Revolver, I liked a couple of songs like Day Tripper. And, right. But, you know, like she was just 17 when they first came out. I was into R&B. Right. I was into James Brown, Wilson Pickett. So I didn't really care for the Beatles or the Stones, really. They were just teeny bopper bands right. you know, to me. But when the Beatles came out with Revolver, I went, whoa, that is some cool stuff. And we were working at Dorian's in Newport with the uh, Vanilla Fudge called The Pigeons. And we were working up our arrangements because that was a fad that was going on in New York. Right. It came from the Rascals, really. You know, and then the Vagrants had Leslie West in it, started slowing down songs and making big production numbers, we called them. Mm. You know, but then Vanilla Fudge had four voices and better musicians than most of the other bands. And that's you know, how we made it. You know, You Keep Me Hanging On was a demo we did, one take mono, everything at once. That yeah. blows my mind. There's no stereo version of that. No. Nope. No multi-track of that. Nope. Wow. Mm -hmm. No, uh, we recorded, re-recorded a stereo version that's out on MVD records, but that's the only one. And now we got a new track. Actually, today is Tim Bogart's birthday. Oh, God bless you. 27th song. of August. And uh, we have a new song come out September 6th next week, which is going to be Stop in the Name of Love with Tim Bogart on it playing with us. And he hasn't played with us in 10 years. Right, right. So this kind of closes the book. Oh. We opened with Hanging On with the original band, and we closed the book with Stopping the Name of Love, Supreme Song. Done very much in the, in the genre of Hanging On. And Hanging On did so great for us. Even lately, he was in that Quentin Tarantino movie, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Now his bits were recorded when? The band recorded in 2019 in December. And Tim did the bass part in January 2020, just before the COVID. And he had stage four cancer at the time, and he, and he just played really great. And as soon as he played with me on that song, it just locked together. It's a great song. So it's coming out. Uh, if you go to uh, vanillafudge.com or my website uh, or my Facebook, I should say, mm. we have a link to the uh, pre-order, and you can hear some of the song. And we have a video coming out, which takes in all the stuff we did in the past. We had Sullivan show, different shows in Europe, the big posters, you know, the psychedelic lights from the Fillmore, you know, videos, uh, photos of the band, and you know, us playing with Hendrix, us playing with Led Zeppelin, with the Cream, with all these different festivals, all going through the video as a tribute to Tim. Now, you guys worked with Shadow Morton, famous record producer who worked with the Shangri-Las and mm -hmm. even the New York Dolls later on, Martha Hoople. What was his, if any, influence on, on the style of the band? Or well, his, his, his influence was the second album, which ruined the band, okay? But the only thing he really did was record the band, is we never been in a studio together. He didn't rearrange anything. Yeah. He did give us Take Me For A Little While as a song to redo. And we did it. We redid it. We arranged it. So that's pretty much all he did. You said the second album ruined the band house out. Well, it was The Beat Goes On. There was no music on it. It, it is strange. It was a concept album that him and Ahmed Erdogan wanted us to do. It's a stupid move. We could have done that like in the fifth album, not the second album. You know, because at the time when our first album came out, we were as big as Hendrix, The Cream, The Who. You know, we were equal bill with all these guys. Led Zeppelin opened up for us, and that second album ruined it. It ruined the momentum we had. I got to say, if there's anyone listening who hasn't picked up that first Vanilla Fudge album, it, it's right up there with all the greats. Pepper, yeah, Revolver, you know? Pet Sounds. It's, it's definitely one of the seminal albums of the time. 
But we get left out of all the historical stuff. I mean, come on, we're not even in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, you know? Well, that's a badge of honor, the way that thing's been going. That's bad. Another story altogether. When we were talking about drummers back in the day, when we came out, I was the only hard hitter one. And then I thought big drums would be louder because we had no PAs. When we toured with Hendrix, I had a monitor system made of uh, Fender Showman amps with a little Shure mixer. And I had the big drums. And Mitch Mitchell used to ask me if he could use my drum mics, my drum amps. I said, sure. There's some pictures that you can see that Mark Stein had a, a Fender amp to power his Leslie's. And I had the Fender amp to power my drum mics. It's one amp would say on the side, it said Mark on a piece of tape. And the other one would say Carmine. And you could see it. They were right up against Jimi Hendrix's Marshalls. So there are some pictures that are out with Hendrix where you see that picture and it says Mark and Carmine on the amplifiers. And I got to think, not many drummers were doing that back then. No, nobody was doing it. Nobody was doing it. I mean, I, you know, just by chance, I, I created a lot of firsts, like playing hard and loud and heavy and powerful. It was by necessity. I didn't play like that when I first started playing. Right. I played like Mitch Mitchell. I played like Ginger, like Charlie. You know, the traditional grip. But when I joined the Vanilla Fudge, it was so loud, I used to have to turn the stick around. So you played with the butt, butt end. end. Yeah, yeah. And then I ended up designing a stick that had a tip on the butt end. In 1981, I did that. You know, but up until then, all through the 70s, I used Ludwig sticks, and they tried to create a tip on the, on the butt end, but it didn't work great. But I just used Ludwig sticks playing it, or I used Regal 5B, you know. And then when I got an endorsement Regal, I said, let's put a tip on the end. Right. Because it'll give it more balance, you know. So that was the first time they ever put a tip on the butt end. You know, I had the big drums. I had the gong. Nobody had the gong. I've got pictures of me playing my Gretsch kit with a, with the 26-inch bass drum that I bought in a, in a porn store. That's P-A-W-N. Thank you. <laughs> <clears throat> and I bought it for five bucks. I recovered it myself. Red Sparkle. And, and there's one picture, I had a 32-inch gong up on a table behind me that I used to use with Vanilla Fudge. At one point, I had chimes, cowbell, I had chimes, I had the gong, I had a timpani. Your roadies then, must have hated you. They did, in a way, because <laughs> there was one point I wouldn't go anywhere without my drum set. If I played in New York, I, my drums were in L.A., I had the roadies drive across country, you know, with my full drum set, my riser, my lights, my gong, everything. Yep. I use syndromes uh, as an effect. I did disappearing drum solos. I use a wah on my snare drums, all different stuff. A lot of it happened by chance, you know. You mentioned that Sullivan show. You did it twice. Yes. Any memories from that experience? Because you know those are notoriously bad for sound, but you guys were just cooking. Luckily, we had our sound guy, who was an English roadie, who was a sound guy also. He's a tour manager sound guy. And he was in the booth with the sound people. He wasn't allowed because of the union to touch the board, right? But he told them what to do, ah. and they listened. So that's why we sound absolutely great on that show. And the next day, on the first hang, uh, the first show at Hanging On, we sold two hundred fifty thousand singles. Oh, I bet. In those days, that was a big yeah. deal to be on that and show. I remember going down the elevator, saying to the elevator operator. How many people watch this show? He goes, oh, about 50 million. And my stomach kind of <laughs> turned. So I got on the drums, you know, and then yeah. I kind of forget it. Then the second time, it was uh, the Near the Beginning album. And that album went from 25 to 15 in one week because of the Ed Sullivan show. You now, know? did you do and, two songs per show? No, we did one. We did Hang It On, the first one. Yeah, and Shotgun, right? And the second one, we did Shotgun. Yeah. And funny story about that. You know, when I was with Ozzy, we took Motley Crue on their first tour, right? Tommy Lee came to my house after the tour as I invited him. You know, he loved my crib, as he called it. He said, I want to get a crib like this. And he, by far, surpassed my crib, you know, that I had. But I showed him the Ed Sullivan thing. I said, this came out in 1968 in the beginning, before Led Zeppelin was even born. And he said, whoa, I can't believe that. And then I played him Shotgun. The end of Shotgun was very similar to the end of Rock and Roll. Mm -hmm. So he said, how long ago before, was this done before Rock and Roll? I said, yeah, this was done 69. Rock and Roll didn't come out till 74. I said, and we were doing Shotgun on the tour with, with Zeppelin. I said, so Bonzo probably got the idea of the end of that from what I did. 
you know? And he says, dude, I can't believe it. I said, well, there it is on video. <laughs> you know? And Bonham was definitely soaking in a lot of your feels and your overall style. Oh, yeah, without a doubt. You know, one of the famous ones was diddle diddle that boom, 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 you know, on the cymbals. You know, snare drum, double time triplet on uh, quarter note triplets on the cymbal and the bass drum. That was one I did on the first album. And you know what's really funny? He, when, I, when I first met him, uh, the first gig, they didn't even want him on the gig. The promoter, we ended up paying half their fee, Vanilla Fudge. Oh. They get him on their first gig. But when I saw him playing it, I saw the triplet on his bass drum, like in Good Times, Bad Time. I said, man, I love that triplet. How'd you come up with that? That's so cool. I said, I got to learn that. He goes, I got it from you. I said, oh, wait a minute. I don't do that. And he pointed out on one album, I think it was on that Renaissance album, mm. that we rushed through after the disaster second album, you know, that I did it once like going bop, 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 like that with the snare drum going bop and the bass drum going doo -doo. so doo -doo bop, doo -doo bop, doo -doo bop. And he took that and went on the bass drum. I said, wow, that is so badass. And he showed me where he got it from on my, on my album. I couldn't believe it. See, it's something you did in passing. Yeah. He makes it look like all those days, all those days of recording, even now, I just play whatever I play, right. you know? And that's why it's hard doing videos today with something that I played on the audio, even if I did it soon after. Right. I don't play the same thing all the time. Plus I play not. it what I feel. Since you're talking about Led Zeppelin, you know, I know a real journalist wouldn't ask this salacious question, but I ain't no journalist, so I don't care. You guys had some crazy times on the road, and it's been well documented. Talk about the famous mud shock incident. Oh, God. Is there validity to that? Or? Yeah, there is. And it, the right story is in my book, Come on a Piece, Stick It, My Life of Sex, Drums, and Rock and Roll. Anybody wants it, they can go to my website and they can grab it. I autograph it. But, you know, this, it was my groupie. I found her on the way to the Seattle Pop Festival. We were all staying in Seattle at the Edgewater Inn on the water. You can fish out the window. So on the way to the gig, you know, she was very much into making whatever musician she was with happy mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, on the way there and back. Right. And then, you know, I was done and I don't know where she went. The next day we had a day off and we were all going somewhere else. So we were in, I think, John Paul Jones' room hanging out. Zeppelin had a portable uh, record player. We were listening to Delaney and Bonnie smoking pot, having a good time. And she knocks on the door, comes in, we let her in. She was smoking pot with us and everything. Next door was John Bonham, Richard Cole, our engineer tour manager that the guy I told you about was in the sound booth at the Ed Sullivan show. He was English. His name was Bruce Wayne, Batman, we used to call him. Yeah. And so he came in and John Bonham's wife was in there. And, you know, Mark Stein was hanging around in our room or some other room. I don't remember. And so they invited me in. They, they, they're catching fish. And they put them in the bathtub with water in it, you know. And they had this little mini shark. It was like a mud shark, they called it. That was cool. So then the chick comes in there and, and they come in and they see the chicken. They go back out, mostly Richie Cole and Bruce Wayne with the ringleaders of the whole thing. And they started, you know, telling the chick to take her clothes off. And by then everybody was like freaking out. We all ran into the hallway while they were doing these, you know, wild things with her. Mm. And then the, the front desk came up. So what's going on here? And they freaked out. So everybody went dispersed to the rooms. So me and Tim and John Paul Jones went to my room, you know, and then next thing we know there's a knock on my door because she knew my room number. She comes in wearing John's, John Paul Jones' bathrobe or something. So, so he freaks out and says, get that off, you low life," You know, so she takes it off. She's sitting there naked and we're, we're having tea and crumpets, <laughs> you know. And then the, the roadies came knocking on my door again. They knew that she was in there. And then they got so crazy, I can't even describe it on, on this that I had to leave my room because my bed was destroyed, okay? And I went in and roomed with Tim. He had two beds in his room. I moved all my suitcase stuff in there. And then the next day when we left, 
I ran into Frank Zappa at the Chicago airport, and we were saying, how are you doing? Yeah, we were friends. We took them on tour, too, at some point. And I told him what went on that night. I said, it was the craziest thing I've ever seen, you know? And next thing I know, live at the Fillmore, there's a song called Mud Shark. Right. And, and they're talking about it. And you know, Frank, I said, oh, leave it to Frank to do this, right? You know? And it was crazy, because I had a girlfriend. She goes, were you involved in that? No, not me. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> And then, you know, I remember when the groupie movie came out, same thing. Yeah, yeah. You know, I went there and she goes, my first endeavor was uh, one of the guys in Vanilla Fudge. And that was me. And she turned into a right groupie. And then recently I just found that Connie died from oh, Little Rock. Yeah. I didn't know that. Uh, and so one of my interviews I did yesterday told me that. Didn't a girl in question actually call you on a, a radio show or something recently? Yeah, she, I believe she lives in, in Canada. We were trying to get her on the show, but I don't think we ever did. I think they talked to her. She's probably like a grandmother, 68 years yeah, old. I'll, no, yeah, right, of course. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's the problem with these stories that, you know, if somebody hears them with 2021 20, ears, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Everything's, uh, you know, uh, you know, she was not so The story becomes. Well, uh, well, also, I mean, come on. Look what's going on with Bob Dylan. That's it. That's the one I was thinking of. You know, I mean, look what's going on with Ron Jeremy. That one I missed. Yeah, he's, he's, he's going, he's in jail for $6 million bail. He don't have the money. Look at uh, the boxer. Uh, come on, the boxer, help me out here. The guy with the scars. Uh, Mike Tyson. Mike Tyson. Right. What happened to him? When, when he got busted for that, I said, we used to do that every night on mm. the road. Yeah, you know, and like, you know, this, this chick li- liked it when she was doing it. Doing that stuff. She Obviously. Likes it but, you know, it's crazy that how it ended up on MTV and VH1, the shocking moments of rock and roll. And, and then it doesn't help when it gets rewritten incorrectly. It was rewritten incorrectly in Richard Cole's book. That's the one I'm thinking of, Hammer of the Gods. Yeah. 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 And actually, when I wrote my book, my co writer was Ian Giddens, who wrote the new Judas Priest autobiography. And I said to him, Isn't it a little graphic, maybe? Maybe we should calm it down. He said, look, this is what happened. It's the truth. And you know what? Middle-aged women are going to love this. <laughs> it's true. I said, get out of here. So we left it in there. You yeah, know? yeah. Now I'm a little more Christian myself. I'm going to kind of question it. But, you know, look, it is life. And, you know, you get uh, you turn into a Christian and you, know, you get forgiven your sins. You know what sure. I mean? Okay. Whenever I sell the book to a, a woman on the road, I said, this is X-rated. I just want to warn you. She goes, oh, great. <laughs> yeah, right. But I've been blessed with my career. I mean, I, you know, I, I know I have, and you know, I came in at the time when you know new things were easy to be had. My ultimate thing was to keep the drums out front. Like I wanted to be the Gene Krupa of rock. You know, I started what turned out to be the guitar center drum off. I did five years of the drum off. We discovered Sonny Emery that played with uh, Earthwind and Fire and other people. We discovered Bobby Rock. We discovered Eric Singer. Uh, just to name three guys that came out of it. And then the Guitar Center ripped me off with it. That was just something I wanted to do. I wanted to have a drum battle with the Muppet guy, Animal. Oh, yeah. right? <laughs> My manager calls them. They love the idea. And they call back, and they go, we're going to use Buddy Rich. You know? So it's your idea. Yeah. Then they- wow. And I knew Buddy at the time. And I called Buddy and said, I hear you doing that. And he said, how do you know? I said, it was my idea. I wanted to do it. He said, well... They wanted the best. I go, well, I can't argue with you there, buddy. <laughs> you know, but, you know, that came about from going to Australia. And I did a clinic tour there. I was playing with Rod. And, and these, some of these people said that I was partying with this. I saw you on TV yesterday. I said, with Rod? No, with the Muppets. I said, the Muppets? What's the Muppets? I never watched TV back in those days. The Muppets, you know, they had a video of it. And they showed me Animal and the Muppets. They said, that's you. They said, look at it. It's got crazy curly hair. All the drum set. got the... That's you. I said, well, I think you're right. That might be me, (laughs) you know? So when my manager called Jim Henson, he said, I think your Muppet character was based off of my artist, and he wants to have a drum battle with him. And that's how it happened. 
And now that video of Buddy Rich with the Muppets is on YouTube. It's become a classic, legendary video. Sure. You mentioned something about, you know, wanting to always put the drums out front, and you did. And you did it with also putting your name out front, which is great. You know, you were and are a star drummer, and there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. But it's kind of bit you in the ass a couple of times in terms of other people not being able to handle it. Yeah. I'm thinking mostly about Rod. Well, Rod Rod was, Rod I get. Me and Rod are friends again. I saw him a few weeks ago out here. And I might go play with him in Vegas for a couple of songs when he's oh, playing at the Caesars. You know? But at the time with Rod, they were doing a lot of coke and drinking. And, you know, I wasn't into that. You know, and the other guy, you know, we used to call him the Fats, friend of the stars. Anytime somebody would come around, like, you know, Henry Winkler or Tony Curtis or, you know, Valerie Perrine, you know, all these movie stars, Gregory Peck, it would always be the Fats that would be right up there at butt, you know? Yeah. And he used to do that with Rod. He'd be out drinking with him, doing drugs with him. And it got to the point where he was jealous of my popularity because it was Rod in the band and I was the next one with the name, you know? So he got in Rod's ear. And in Rod's intro to my book, Rod says, I fired Carmine, fuck knows why. Uh, Because he fired the whole band the first time and kept me. And I brought this guy Fats back in and I got Jay Davis, I got Danny Johnson, and uh, I I okay with Rod to bring Kevin Savagaw back in because he was in late in the first band. And we got a new sax player. We had a whole new band, you know, and this other guy, Robin, they brought in. It was a whole new band, and I'm the only guy from the old band that originally was in, and I brought the other guys in, you know, so we were good friends. When I left Rod, my solo album was coming out on Rod's label with Everywhere But America, all around the world. I did a tour of Japan with that album. I did a lot of stuff, and I had, you know, my name on the drums, and Rod was doing interviews for the album that I co-wrote Young Turks on, and that album was out at the same time. And he would say, how could I trust a drummer with the name on his drums? And I think to myself, what the hell does that mean? <laughs> you know? What does that mean? <clears throat> I don't know. I mean, he you helped deliver two of his biggest hits. I mean. He was he was pissed. I had gotten Rod and Jeff Beck back together. And then after we became friends again, me and Jeff were hanging out in my house in L.A. with Dwayne Hitchens, a co-writer of Sexy and Young Turk. And we put together the people get ready. And then Jeff said, why don't we get Rod on it? We went to meet Rod. We had Rod's number. We met him. He liked it. I was in the studio with the two of them. And then he came out on Jeff's record. And we really almost got no credit for it, you know, other than thanks to the boys on Jeff's record. But, you know, if Jeff didn't stay with me at that time, he probably that never would have happened. Right. You know, so it's really a lot of crazy stuff happened in my career that just by chance, you know. It's an ego-driven career to the music yeah. business. It's a, it's, yeah, it is, it is. And well, I mean, I have my egos as well, you know. But I'm very interested in two particular people that you've worked with. Uh, you know what? You know what? So I never got into why Sharon fired me because I was getting too much press. Just what I was going to say. Ozzy. Talk to me about Ozzy. working with Ozzy. So Ozzy was great. They put me in charge of Ozzy in New York. They brought me in as an associate producer because Tommy Aldridge already recorded. They want me to help the drum sound. With Tony Bongiovi was the engineer. We were working in New York. Sharon left Ozzy in my care as an associate producer. Mm. And then when we got the album done, we flew to England, did Bark at the Moon video, and then we did the English tour. And in my contract, my manager put in, I had my own merch because I was, you know, a name guy. And I had, uh, I was able to do master classes in each market, which I was doing. I did them. I was doing great. I was making big money between Ozzy's pay and my master classes. I was raking it in, you know, really raking in big money. Mm. She didn't like that. So basically, after six weeks of it, she fired me. She did crazy stuff like she didn't personally do it, but had it done. Cut the heads off my head on my T-shirts for my merch. Dozens of shirts, right? And then I would be doing PR for the tour after yeah. my master classes. And I was giving money to UNICEF from the master classes. I ended up giving UNICEF a, a total of $50,000. Wow. You know, and I felt good about that. And I was getting a lot of press. One, one time in Cincinnati, 
I walk in backstage from doing the master class and she's telling me how tired I am. I'm not tired. I'm rearing to go. And all over the backstage was this article on the Cincinnati newspaper, full page article, and talking about me and the master class and me being with Ozzy. And the biggest effect in the show was my drum solo with the stairs open and the riser would come down and I'd be, you know, getting closer to the audience. I'd do my solo and I had glowing drumsticks and all this stuff, which is my effect. Yeah. But just so happened that night, the effect didn't work. So I thought that was screwed up. And Bob Daisley said, of course it didn't work. He said that in the magazine, in the article. That's why it didn't work. And, but I did say that wasn't my idea. It was Sharon and Ozzy's idea. I just happened to be the drummer on that stage doing it. Right. Right? So she's you know? actually sabotaging she her sabotaged own She her own show to try and make me look bad. And then a few weeks later, a couple of weeks later, she fired me and had Tommy Aldridge come and watch the show. And I was a friend, Tommy. I went out to dinner with him. I paid for it because I felt bad that he was out of work and had twins. And I didn't know he was there to replace me. Wow. You know? But don't you have I a contract with these people? I had a contract. I had a contract with them. She just which included it? me as an associate producer where I got a bonus every time I hit yeah. a certain amount of sales. And, uh, and she fired me and her words to me were, your name is too big. You need to start your own band. Makes no sense. So I started King Cobra. Yeah. And that did fairly well. Not as good as I wanted it to do, but it, it gave me a career boost. But, you know, it pissed me off because I was ready to do the next album with Ozzy and give him my killer drum sound. Yeah. You know, and my, my, my songwriting abilities and my production abilities. Just my experience, you know. Yeah, yeah. Because even though when he came out in 1970, I was out before him. We did gigs with them with Cactus as Sabbath first came out. You know, so. But I don't think it was anyway. him at all. It's, it's no, no. And then later on when I was doing King Cobra, I made great deals with Capitol Records and a merch deal. I bought myself a motorhome, a truck, a van, and we were painting them at a studio called Mates. Ozzy was auditioning drummers again, and we were painting the motorhome, and I was putting tape on the windows with, with uh, brown paper, you know, to, to mask up the windows. Yeah. And Ozzy came, he said, oh, come on, how are you, mate? I said, I'm good. How you doing? He goes, look, I know you're having problems with my missus. Yeah, I'm suing them, you know? <laughs> yeah. But I hope we can be friends. I go, yeah, Oz, I know it's not you. So he goes, what are you doing? I told him what I'm doing. He goes, you need some help? I said, sure. I put Ozzy on a ladder on the other side of the window, and he's helping me put up the masking tape and the brown paper. <laughs> you know? And then That's we went cool. inside. I said, look, I'm going to run through the set with King Cobra and my stage set and everything. I'd like you to see it because, you know, this is what I'm doing. I did after I played with you. He said, yeah, yeah. So he came in and he stayed for the first four or five songs and he had to go back in. But he was like one of the first people that saw the stage show before it went out on the road. Wow. So that was kind of weird. I haven't talked to her since, since 1984. You worked with Sly Stone. <laughs> you, there's got to be a story there. You know, Sly Stone, Sly and the Family Stone opened for Vanilla Fudge. Everybody opened for Vanilla Fudge. Matter of fact, when I was a BBA, we were working on getting uh, Sly to produce us. You know, we were friends. I knew the whole band. And me and Tim were in New York, and Sly invited me and Tim to go up on stage and jam with them. I want to take you high. So we did. He invited us to go to Rhode Island, to, to Providence, and do it in Providence. So we did that as well. Hmm. You know, we were at their wedding when he got married at Madison Square Garden oh, with yeah. Tim. Yep. And then we went to San Francisco with Beck and all our equipment and the roadies and everything. And, and we, you know, we couldn't get him in the studio. One time we went in the studio, he said, come on, give me a groove, give me a groove. So I gave him a groove. He said, Jeff, play something. Jeff would play something. Tim, you play something. And we're playing this groove. And he goes, I keep playing. I'll be right back. And he walked out of the studio and never came back. <laughs> yeah. That doesn't surprise me in the least. Unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Has he gotten his shit together, or is it still? No, it's still like that. Still rough. I mean, yeah. Cleopatra called me to do that record. You know, I went in the studio. It was already recorded, and I, I played to it. That yeah, was it. I never talked to Sly. Oh. I saw him after that. He played B.B. King's. It was a long way down from Madison Square Garden. Oh, yeah. You know? Yep, yep. yep. And it was a, just him. There was a whole new band. You know, I met the band. I met the manager who was managing it. And I was sitting there, and he did the same thing. He came out, and I think it was, I want to take you higher again. And he walks out and walks into the audience, he's got everybody clapping and everything. And he walked up to the bar, walked out the door, and walked out of the building. 
and the band, you can see the band playing, not knowing what to do. And my girlfriend, you know, Leslie, Sly is one of her favorite bands. She was so disappointed. Of course. <laughs> you know? of course. And we stayed for the next show when he never showed up. Oh, yeah. Club owners love when you do that. Oh, man. It's terrible. <sighs> Unbelievable. Listen, I'd be giving you short shrift if I didn't mention your work as an author. Not only, as you mentioned, the great autobiography, Stick It, My Life of Sex, Drums, and Rock and Roll, but your various instructional books for drummers, which, you know, you were a pioneer in that area as a rock drummer. You just didn't see that in the 70s, in the early 70s. Again, that's what that's what I say. I did things out of, you know, not thinking, oh, this is a first. You know, while I was with Ludwig with Vanilla Fudge, they always told me, let's do clinics, let's do clinics. I used to say, talk about egos. I don't want to do clinics. You know, I've been on Ed Sullivan's show. You know, yeah. I don't want to do clinics. <laughs> so when I was with Cactus, I went into the Sam Ash store. Now they had two or three Sam Ash stores. And I'd go in and I'd look at, you know, just for the hell of it, I went up to the drum book section. And I saw a drum book said, learn how to play rock drums. And a guy that looked like his hair combed back like Elvis Presley, dressed like Elvis Presley, holding the drums traditional grip. And you could tell this guy never played these grooves. And I said to myself, you know what? I'm going to write a book that's realistic to rock drumming from a rock drummer that's playing rock. And I want to write it to the point where when he goes through this book, whether he can read great or not, he'll be able to play with a band. I said that to myself. So we went on the road with Cactus. And I don't know what tour we were on in 72. It was maybe 71 even. And I started writing the book. I wrote it in 30 days. And instead of partying every night with the band, right after we got back to the hotel with chicks and all that, I went to my room and I wrote, you know, for an hour or two. And then I stopped. You know. So by the end of the tour, I had the thing written. So I gave it to our lawyer, who was a powerful lawyer at the time. And he said, okay, I got you a deal. I got the $500 advance. And we were talking 1971. So $500 advance. Today is probably five grand, you know. Easy. So I said, oh, great. He said, but the good thing about the deal is you own the copyright. So the licensing deal. I didn't even know what that meant. <laughs> you know? You do now. I found out later. Yeah, I bet. Right, so now that book is done. I updated it a couple of times. I tried to publish it myself through Almo A&M. Then I went on Warner Brothers, and I started getting big advances for it. You know, over the years, it sold over 400,000, 450,000 re uh, records books yeah and still going and it became the biggest rock drum book of all time and then in 1972 ludwig said you got the book now we'll buy a thousand books a year and you do clinics and we'll sell them to the stores to help you sell the book i remember after the first year i, I was friends with joe morello you know and we started doing symposiums and clinics together and i said man i sold three thousand books he goes oh my god that's big. That's huge. <laughs> I thought it sucked because you know I'm, I'm selling you know four or five hundred thousand records, you know. So I thought it's no comparison now. Thousand books. What's yeah. that? A lot. I remember even on the BBA tour be before, like people were doing merchandise. We never did merchandise on the BBA tour. I brought Realistic Rock on the tour and I sold it at the gig. I didn't go out and autograph it or not, but I sold them. Yeah. And eventually, my biggest year was 2005. I sold 12,000 books that year. Wow. And now, at the first, it was you know 695 or something. Yeah, yeah. Now I'm selling my 2495. I sold 12,000 of them. That's damn good. Yeah. That's big gross. Now you talked about re-releasing some of them on, was you saying, Modern Drummer? Now they're all being re-released, even the ones that they stopped printing. Like I did in uh, 1975, I did Double Feet. And we re-released that, but nobody pushed it. You know, yeah. I did realistic hi-hats, which had these overlays. It was $6.95. There's no way you could make money because you had to print two different books really at once. Mm -hmm. You know, I did a, in the 80s, I did a realistic reggae, you know, because the police became famous. I loved reggae. I played it with Rod, you know, and, and I wrote a reggae book. And then the, the guy that's running Modern Drummer Magazine publish, uh, publishing for the books, he ran Warner Brothers. He said, we need to do a kid's book. So let's do a realistic rock. So the, all my books became realistic, realistic rock, realistic hi-hats, yeah. realistic double feet, realistic reggae. That was like my brand. And then we did a realistic kids, uh, realistic rock for kids. And that became a pretty good seller. Mentioning kids, you're out there as much as anybody else is. Do you think that the youth of today 
there's no way it's as passionate as it was in the 70s and 80s. Definitely not. But there are some kids that are amazing from the natural talent. But as far as kids focusing on taking lessons, it's not as much as it used to be, like we used to be. Sure. It's a shame, you know? huh? It is a shame. I got a kid up the block here that's going to School of Rock. They're giving him lessons. What does School of Rock do? Almost like what Realistic Rock does. It teaches them to play a song, specific song. This uh, next month or so, we're going to learn to play Who Are You by The Who, you know? So the, the rest of the band play it, and the drummer will emulate the Woodkey thing and get the kid to kind of emulate that right. as best as the kid could do. If the kid don't have the talent, he can't do it with nothing. Right. Where if you teach a kid that has no talent technically how to play, he'll be able to play, even with no talent, because he learned you know, all the rudiments and everything. Yeah. That's the difference. So a lot of these School of Rock kids, that's what they're learning. For all the gigs you've done, and God knows there's probably too many to count, can you pinpoint your worst on-stage experience? Yes, easily. Uh, there was a group called KGB. It was originally with Mike Broomfield and Rick Gretsch. When we got the record deal, Rick Gretsch started doing drugs. We got rid of him. And the manager was Elliot Roberts from Lookout Management, who just finished being partners with David Geffen. So it was Geffen Roberts manager who they managed Crosby, Stills and Nash and, and uh, Joni Mitchell and a lot of big acts. And they got this thing together. So Mike Bloomfield comes out in the LA Times saying, there's no way I would ever play with Carmine Peace or Rick Gretsch. You know, they don't play enough blues for me. You know, this was done by a big management company put it together. I mean, what an idiot. You don't say that in the LA Times. No. So Elliot fired him. So we got two other people in. So it was me, this guy Benny Schultz, guy Greg Hutch, Sutton, Ray Kennedy, who was in the original one, and Barry Goldberg, who was a songwriter. You know, not great on stage, but a great B3 player. Yeah. And we, were play we went out on tour with Joe Cocker. And, you know, Benny and Greg were not that experienced. Barry was boring. And it really wasn't a great show. And it was it's had some good songs, but, you know, Unless you got the songs happening, yeah. we were the number one radio airplay. And we were on tour with Joe Kaku. Every time the guitar solo came, he'd be off to the side of the stage throwing up in a, front, in a, in a garbage bin. Really? You know? I mean, it was the worst experience wow. of my career. Wow. And it was probably the lull of my career. Well, maybe, I don't know, the, the, my gig with Vinnie Vincent when he was in my band. You know, but, but those gigs were actually better. But... The ending uh, result playing to him was pretty low in my career. Just like you did. 
1976, that's KGB with Woman, Stop What You're Doing, a funky number written by the man himself, Carmine and Peace, who I want to thank being on the It's Only Rock and Roll podcast today. Be sure to pick up a copy of his autobiography, Stick It, My Life of Sex, Drums, and Rock and Roll, available at Amazon and on his website. The links to both are available in the show notes. And speaking of links, all of our shows are available for streaming at www.itsonlyrockandrollpodcast.com as well as on iHeartRadio, iTunes, YouTube, Spotify, and wherever fine podcasts are found. Visit us on social media at Facebook, TikTok, and Instagram at It's Only Rock and Roll Podcast. All typed out as one word, no spaces or commas. We'll be back soon with another episode of the It's Only Rock and Roll Podcast. Sure.